When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Rob Marchant, who is a professor of tropical ecology in the Department of Environment and Geography at the University of York in the UK. And today's book is East Africa's Human Environment Interactions, Historical Perspectives for a Sustainable Future, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. East Africa's Human and uh, Environment Interactions is an ambitious integration of ecological, archeological, uh, and anthropological land use sciences, drawing on human geography, demography, and economics of development across the East Africa region. It focuses on understanding and unpicking the interactions that have taken place between the natural and the unnatural history of East African region and trace this interaction from the evolutionary foundations of our species, which is 200,000 years ago, through the outwards and inwards human migrations, often associated with the adoption of uh, subsistence strategies, new technologies, and the arrival of new crops. The book will explore the impact of technological developments such as transitions to tool making, uh, metallurgy, and the arrival of crops also involved an international dimension in waves of human migrations in and out of East Africa. Time will be presented with a widening focus that will frame the contemporary with a particular focus on the Anthropocene, uh, which is the last 500 years to the present day. Many of the current challenges have their foundations, as the author argues, in pre-colonial and colonial history. As such, there will be a focus on how these have evolved and the impact on environmental and human landscapes. Moving into the Anthropocene era, 
there was an increasing exposure to the international drivers of change, such as those associated with ivory and slave trade. These international trade routes were tied into the ensuing decimation of elephant populations through uh, the exploitation of natural uh, mineral resources, which have been uh, sought after through to the present day. The book will provide a balanced perspective on the region, the people, and how the natural and, na and, and unnatural histories have combined to create a, a dynamic region. These historical perspectives will be galvanized to outline the future changes and the challenges they will bring around such issues as sustainable development, space for wildlife and people, and the position of East Africa within a globalized world, and how this is potentially going to evolve over the coming decades. Welcome, Professor Marchand, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation, and I yeah, look forward to exploring this uh, yeah, really important topic over the next hour or so. Great to have you. Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors along the way? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm based in the UK. Um, I'm now based at the uh, University of York. Um, and in fact, I was born not too far away from here in uh, a coastal town of Hull, but I grew up in, in the south of England uh, in a very, very small community surrounded by forests. And I guess that's really where I you know, had that spark of uh, love for nature and how things work, the entangled nature of, of our ecosystems. Um, I didn't take a, maybe a traditional route of going straight into university. I took about uh, I'm fairly, about six years out after school, um, enjoying my teenage years in London, doing a, a whole range of different jobs, but went back to university in my mid-20s to the University of Hull, um, where, again, my interest was sort of reignited around uh, environmental geography, botany, ecosystems. I was very fortunate, fortunate enough to have um, set up a small uh, expedition with a couple of friends to work on seagrasses, the seagrasses of Zanzibar for my undergraduate dissertation. And that was really my first introduction into um, the East African region. Um, and uh, again, was fortunate enough to then to go on to do a PhD also at Hull uh, University, working with um, Dave Taylor on a long-term ecosystem history of, of Uganda. Uh, probably one of the most uh, you know, beautiful forests I feel in the, in the world, windy, impenetrable forest, national park, famous, I guess, for its uh, remaining mountain gorilla population. But I was much more interested in the, in the swamps and the, uh, the pollen grains and the gorillas of, uh, of windy. And through that research, we were able to produce really a nice long-term environmental history going back about 40,000 years. Um, but what really struck me during those formative PhD years was how that forest had shrunk, how it had been cut down, it had been nibbled away um, over the last um, centuries and millennia to effectively form a, a forested island surrounded by this sort of sea of agriculture uh, and that forested island probably is some of the, the most valuable conservation uh, land in the world with the mountain gorilla populations, people paying large amounts of money to come and see the gorillas, stay in, in lodges around the park. Um, 
but also it's a vital um, source of, of livelihoods and services and medicinal plants. So the people that live or used to live within the forest and, and presently live surrounding that forested area. Um, so it's this interaction between climate and people that really sparked my interest. That interest was really developed through a series of postdocs, uh, particularly at the University of Amsterdam and um, Trinity College Dublin. And I particularly would like to say thanks to uh, Henry Hohemstra, my uh, long-term friend and mentor from the University of Amsterdam, um, that really sparked my interest in, in bringing different data sets, different perspectives together. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction, that sort of interaction with archaeologists, historians, um, and ecological data. Um, so really, that's, I guess, a bit of a background to myself. I moved to York oh, about 15 years ago now uh, to set up a, an institute around tropical ecosystems. And that has you know, continued over those 15 years, waxing and waning through various projects. Um, currently, I think we have nine PhD students and uh, three postdocs that we're, we're working with um, and uh, continuing to do paleoecological work, but also doing a lot more future work. So I guess to summarise my career over over this sort of 30 or so years of working in different locations um, in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, I guess I, I've moved a little bit from sort of looking down into sediments and back through time um, to try to develop methods to look up and forward to try and get ahead of those challenges. And as we all know, there are many challenges out there for, for, for many of our landscapes across the world. Challenges around changing climates, around growing and developing populations, around changing international um, relationships, partnerships, um, and ultimately trying to achieve sustainable development, trying to achieve conservation of biodiversity, trying to achieve multiple development um, agendas. Um, so yeah, challenges are ahead, but certainly lessons are there in the past. Thank you for sharing this uh, background. It's interesting to know that you've started your career with Zanzibar, and I wouldn't blame you for falling in love with the region through Zanzibar, as as the case with many travelers and explorers and writers about East Africa. Um, let's now move to talking about East Africa's human environment interactions. Can you start us first with talking about uh, where is East Africa? What is East Africa? What's East, what sets East Africa apart from the rest of the African continent, as well as the Indian Ocean world? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, it's a, a little bit of a, a contested term, uh, and there are multiple definitions of East Africa in terms of a, a geopolitical space. Um, I think the one connecting thing really is the language, um, Swahili. So obviously, this was a, a trading language linked back to those connections uh, in, in, into, the, into the Middle East, um, particularly uh, associated with, with trade, um, goods both from the Middle East into East Africa and from East Africa into 
into the Middle East as those uh, that sort of East African trade, those East African trade routes developed, particularly over the last thousand years. Um, in terms of um, how it is set apart from the rest of the the continent. Um, certainly that language sets it apart. I mean, again, I think the environmental and cultural diversity, um, as we all know, the African continent is incredibly diverse culturally and uh, and environmentally. Um, but in a way, East Africa, I feel, is a microcosm of that cultural and environmental diversity um, with multiple um, cultures and... You know, such a wide range of environments from permanent ice on the top of the high mountains to really dense, high stature coastal rainforests, montane rainforests, some of the, the hottest of the biodiversity hotspots in the world, um, through to, you know, dry deserts, cold deserts on the top of the mountains. So really the whole the whole world comes to comes to play out across uh, the East African landscapes. Right. Uh, and also in situating uh, East Africa and the Indian Ocean, you've mentioned the connections to the Middle East. And perhaps you would like to say more about how uh, East Africa as a region uh, through, let's say, the last couple of thousands of years was quite interconnected with the rest of the Indian Ocean world through crops, through monsoon system and other ways. Certainly. Um well, let's take those different elements. Certainly crops um, is, is a good starting point. And many of the crops that we see today in, in East Africa have their origins in, uh, in, in the Far East and obviously would have come across the Indian Ocean. Things like um, bananas, um, taro, rice, um, you know, they would have obviously had that sort of trans-Indian Ocean um, origin, would have been brought in by uh, these early trade networks. Um, those trade networks, again, as well as bringing in material, would have taken out uh, material, particularly around ivory, and I'm sure we'll come back to ivory uh, to a lesser degree um, slave trading uh, later on in the discussion. Um, but also other, you know, minerals and, uh, you know, obviously there's a trade around around, around gold. Um, and why it was such a, an important trading area, and that was particularly driven by the monsoons. You know, you had a, a very favourable monsoonal wind that would carry ships, ocean-going um, sailing ships, down uh, across the Indian Ocean, down through... Uh, coastal east, eastern Africa, and then as those winds reversed um, to, to the northeast, they were able to then have a, a, a trailing wind all the way back up into the Middle East. So there was an annual cycle of southeasterly and then northwesterly winds that would have carried um, ships very effectively from the Middle East and uh, into uh, the various coastal ports across across East Africa. Um, and obviously that then connects across to um, sort of the Indian subcontinent. And then, you know, we've got lots of early signs of uh, interaction with China. So it really was a quite a globalised um, part of this sort of world from a very early, early starting point. 
Indeed. Uh, and in writing the book, you combined uh, multiple disciplines and uh, trying to write a deep history, uh, moving from geological times and evolutionary times and bringing them to historical times. So can you share with the listeners uh, the research process and the challenges that you faced in bringing these different uh, strands of scholarships together and narrating and constructing a narrative that tells the story of East Africa through time? Yeah, certainly. And uh, as a paleoecologist, that's my uh, traditional discipline. That's what I did my initial sort of PhD research on. And still, we still have some uh, paleoecological projects, largely in East Africa, but also in other parts of the uh, other parts of the world. Um, one of the the key things I think within paleoecology is the need to connect to multi multiple disciplines to understand change. Now, often those changes are driven by changes in climate, so having some appreciation of uh, meteorological processes, climate science is, is key. Obviously, in an East African context, ocean, ocean uh, atmospheric connections are key. We've talked about monsoons already, so having some uh, appreciation of uh, oceanography is key. Um, clearly, people have interacted with their ecosystems at multiple times in multiple places um, so understanding cultures understanding transitions uh, of populations migrations of early populations um, again is is a key component of understanding ecosystem change and I think, again, throughout my career, one of the things I've really embraced and I think have certainly benefited from is that ability to work with, with different disciplines, particularly archaeologists, anthropologists, historians, to understand those connections between people uh, and their ecosystems, how that interaction has changed as technologies have changed, as you know, things like iron has been invented as I moved across the landscape, as fire management became an increasingly used tool, as crops arrived, we'd mentioned things like rice and bananas. And I guess one of the, the massive transformation, and I'm sure we'll come to talk about that later on, across East Africa was the uh, importation of maize from, um, from, from sort of you know, Latin America. Um, so understanding those connections between people, ecosystems, and environment really is, uh, you know, necessary, ne necessitates a a range of different disciplines, um, and obviously that also yeah. ensures that you, <laughs> you you keep interested. There's a lot of uh, disciplines to connect to. Uh, clearly, you can't be a, a, you know, an authority in, 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 in them all, but certainly having a, an, an appreciation of the long term from evolutionary biologists through to um, the sort of anthropological uh, works about how people interact and relate to their environment, how the use of medicinal plants, for example, has changed um, through time, uh, really helps you understand that present day um, situation of people and their ecosystems and as I mentioned in the introduction if we're on if we want to try and understand some of those future challenges around sustainability 
we really have to bring the dif different disciplines together um, to really craft novel and um, and effective ad adaptation strategies. Indeed. Uh, in narrating the deep history of East Africa, uh, you've started uh, in the first chapter with foundations, as you called it, the environment, ecosystems, and cultures of East Africa. And then we move from that to origins and migration, environmental and cultural change over the last 300 years in East Africa. Uh, well, we cannot cover 300,000 years in this podcast, but um, in trying to, uh, let's say, compress this this big history um, in a few minutes, uh, how would you describe the shaping of the region in terms of um, the flora and fauna and the subsequent human uh, influx coming from the African continent, but also across the Indian Ocean later on? Yeah. Well, I, I agree. We can't <laughs> cover such a wide time frame in, in, in this uh, in this podcast. And indeed, it was challenging to do so within within the book. Um, and obviously, we were able to do this by zooming into and zooming out of key time periods. Um, again, I think it's quite uh, important to in in the context of sort of geological timeframes. So again, to realise you know we're a relatively new arrival on the planet, our species. You know, like you say, we've been around for yes. Again, the timeframes keep on shifting, but say to two to three hundred thousand years. In terms of our modern modern species, and clearly in that time we've had a, a massive impact. In the context of East Africa, I think that those impacts were particularly driven by inward migration from elsewhere on the African continent. First and foremost, I think would have been the uh, oh, that first transition out of the out of the Sahara into the Nile as we moved out of the Ice Age into the um, into the Holocene, as the sort of green and verdant landscape of what is now the Sahara um, became increasingly desiccated, that moved particularly pastoral populations south and north. Uh, the southern arm were funneled down the Nile Valley into into East Africa, particularly arriving. In, in northern Kenya, around the Takana Basin, probably around about 8,000 or so years ago. Um, and those pastoral populations quickly spread across, across the region. Another very significant transformation, again, within the African continent, was that man migration of Bantu populations, predominantly agricultural populations um, that spread out very rapidly from um, sort of proto homeland in the in, in the western part of the continent, um, and as I say, they were predominantly an agricultural population, iron using, uh, focusing on you know traditional crops of sort of sorghum and millets and yams, and were able to quickly spread across the continent, um, and again they came to connect in East Africa. Uh, we had these incoming Bantu agriculturists, the the incoming um, um, pastoral populations. And again, we can see today that interaction between farming populations and pastoral populations. And clearly those uh, traditional populations are 
now having to go undergo quite rapid transition, particularly in the face of of contemporary uh, challenges, particularly around climate change, um, and also as the ability to migrate and have uh, sort of transhumance pastoralism has been curtailed, has been taken away. And again, I'm sure we'll come back to some of these issues later on. Um, clearly, those pastoral populations are increasingly turning towards a mixed livelihood that in involves, in some cases, uh, you know, the growing of crops. Um, external to the East African migrations, we have the external uh, inward flux of, of populations and crops. And again, I mentioned earlier on this big transformation of uh, the arrival of maize. Um, and we know maize arrived into the landscape around about sort of, you know, in the early 1600s uh, and really was one of those sort of big sort of Anthropocene markers. And again, we, you know, you mentioned the Anthropocene being the last 500 or so years. Um, and again, it has a different time stamp in different parts of the world um, but certainly the last sort of four to five hundred years in East Africa has been a, a, a really transformative period particularly driven by the arrival of um, populations from outside of the African continent um, and particularly some of those uh, populations were yeah, trading um, and then Obviously, became increasingly exploitative, particularly around ivory, um, and I'm sure we'll we'll pick up on some of these issues later on. Um, so, I think trying to compress this sort of long-term class perspective is really important in terms of just providing a foundation, as the chapter suggests. It's a foundation of understanding the cultures, understanding the populations which are there in the present-day landscape and how they interact with the environment and that environmental and geological diversity I mentioned earlier on, from very high altitudinal ecosystems to you know, very highly biodiverse coastal forests um, and, and incredibly rich um, oceanic ecosystems. Um, so understanding those those past transitions, I think, is is crucial if we're to understand some of the the more recent historical transitions, and then use that understanding to to think about um, yeah, some of those those future challenges again that I'm sure we will come on to later on. Yes, thank you for setting uh, this uh, background to our discussion. And uh, definitely knowing the ecological uh, foundations uh, of East Africa would help us to understand the subsequent historical changes and uh, in, in the subsequent chapters, trading language, new crops, new relationships, digging Anthropocene foundations, and elephants, maize, and pervasive societal environmental transformations. So in these chapters, uh, how would you describe the... Uh, the adapt adaptation, uh, let's say, technologies and attitudes of East African societies towards new ideas, new crops, and new technologies. And, and in adopting uh, and contextualizing or localizing uh, these new changes, uh, how did that in turn uh, transform uh, the East African environment? Yeah. Um, so again, quite quite a few few uh, sort of facets within within that uh, question. Um, 
I think first and foremost, I think it's important to realise, and again, the, the the first of these chapters um, around, uh, you know, the environmental history of the last thousand years, again, clearly shows that uh, our environments continue to change. Again, there's a lot of uh, concern, and quite rightly so, uh, on contemporary issues of climate change. And again, there's every now and again, we get that continual debate about natural versus uh, anthropogenically driven climate change and and those who like to sort of grind the wheel of oh yes it's all natural will bring out these records to show that climates have changed but we can see from some of our lake level records um places like like lake naivasha in, in in northern kenya or lake victoria that that really is at the heart of that east african region lake Takana i mentioned earlier on now have changed quite dramatically in terms of their their lake level. And that's in response to change in temperatures, precipitation regimes, particularly precipitation regimes. And clearly populations have adapted. They've adapted in the past to these very strong pulses of changing climate. And that adapt adaptability um has been has been possible. Be Due to the ability to migrate, to move cattle, say from from lowlands up into into into, into the highland forested areas or highland pastures, as uh, as as climates would change, um, and it's clearly that ability to move across the landscape. I think that has been uh, curtailed, particularly um, through sort of colonial and 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 post colonial periods, as as they've become more and more people on the landscape. And that ability of that landscape to allow migration has been has been taken away, and that obviously brings challenges as well to 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 our you know species as they would like to roam across the landscape as increasingly that that ability to migrate to move freely um, has been taken away. In terms of you know the the big transformations that have happened in the, in the last thousand last thousand years. Certainly, that arrival of uh, you know the expansion of that Middle Eastern trade, that development of that Swahili culture, particularly across the coast, um, and then spreading inland from from those coastal environments, um, has been one of the big transformations. Uh, I've already mentioned a few times maize. Uh, I'll mention it again just because I think it really has been one of the, the massive transformations that have taken place uh, across East Africa, um, particularly um, supporting rapid growth of populations, particularly in, in mountain areas, um, large-scale transformation of mountain ecosystems to terraced agriculture, to um, supporting growing populations, but also supporting this growing network of trade. Um, again, mentioned previously, a lot of that trade was driven by um, ivory. Um, and again, there's lots of contemporary challenges around ivory trade and ivory smuggling, very much linked into, into Far East markets. Um, but clearly, you know, the big traders of um, and, and foundations of trade were largely European, North American. Um, and that is where the, the main exploitation of, of ivory um, came in. 
and really has transformed the landscape through changing the relationship between the elephant populations and the ecosystems. Um, today, we all, you know, we can see, you can visit, you know, a protected area in East Africa and watch an elephant, you know, knocking over trees, eating his way through 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 uh, acacia acacia um, scrub, and they are incredibly transformative. Today, I think we have just a, around about two hundred thousand or so elephants across the East African landscape: Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. We don't know how many there were, but certainly estimates of sort of twenty million. Um, I think are are probably not too far from the mark. Um, and again, we can see some of those uh, historical uh, historical evidence for the. Um, removal of, of ivory from key ports like Mombasa or, or, or Zanzibar, um, where hundreds of thousands of tusks were taken out every year. Those tusks clearly had to be carried out of the, uh, the, the, uh, the region, uh, and that would then lead to the formation of these very large caravans. So it could be thousands of people strong you know a thousand people moving you know walking across the landscape 10 15 miles per day and then stopping at uh, you know well recognized uh, so-called halts again would need large amounts of calorie large amounts of uh, of food to support these these uh, quite demanding manually labor driven um um, caravans, and that would then lead to you know, much, much more uh, widespread uh, forest clearance, transitions into in, in, into uh, into maize fields to provide the calories needed to to carry you know, very very heavy tusks, hundred kilogram uh, loads. I um, say thousand people strong moving into east into the interior of East Africa, and then moving back to the coast carrying the ivory with them. And that again, obviously coming across a number of cultures as as through that journey. Um, and again, it's quite well recognized how some of the cultures would engage differently with these caravan trades, some providing support in terms of of food or also in terms of of the ivory um, production, killing killing elephants, taking the tusks out. Um, and then trading to the uh, to the caravan trades, either with things like cloth or beads, glass beads, largely from from places like Venice, or mm -hmm. oiled iron, or indeed in some case arms. So again, there was this uh, you know quite uh, rapid. Uh, transformation and that transformation spread across the landscape. So today we find relatively few elephants in in coastal areas, and those elephants that are there are confined to protected areas like Shimba Hills or Arabuki Sokoki Forest in in Kenya. Um, but elsewhere, you know, it's very rare to come across a, an elephant in those in these coastal areas because they've been largely removed, and it's not until you go further inland, three, four hundred kilometers, that you start to come up to look against large elephant populations. Again, 
today largely within the confines of these protected areas. So that last thousand years has really been you know, incredibly transformative, um, but populations have adapted to those transformations and those transformations could have been, could be environmental, changing climates, but certainly they're driven largely by these, uh, this increase in trade, these increasing, increasing trade connections through the world. Yeah, obviously across the Indian Ocean, but linked back into particularly Europe and North America. How would you describe the transition to the colonial period? Is it merely an increase in intensification and volume and scale? Or is it a fundamental transformation of relationships with the environment? Um, I think the latter. I mean, clearly there was a, a, a history there. So those those transformations and and who was behind those uh, those colonial transformations, particularly in East Africa, German and and and, and British, um, at that time, um, and that feeds back onto the who was driving some of the some of the uh, some of the the earlier trades and also some of those. You know, early exp explorers as people were started to move further, further around the world, um, starting to map out the world, starting to find you know sources of rivers, um, and also the the church obviously had a massive role to play in some of those early transformations, those transitions into colonial um, 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 sort of legislation and and, and powers um, in terms of um, their impact on the environment again completely transformative um, but I think again it was sort of standing on those uh, th those previous caravan trades in terms of the relationships that uh, that, that were there uh, and, uh, and and ultimately it was yeah driven by trade. Um, an increasingly exploitative trade um, and a transition of, of trade. So we've, we've moved from you know, initially trade in elephants and that to, uh, and, and ivory, and increasingly those uh, those ivory trades started to to, to, to dwindle, um, and increasingly other trades started to evolve, particularly crops and timber. Timber was obviously a, a big a big uh, trade of those uh, those early colonial um, transition. Um, uh, would you say there was a difference between uh, the different European colonialisms, comparing the German, let's say, to the British, down to the French in the south, or even the Italians in Somalia? Or did they have, let's say, common uh, policies towards forestry, land management, and water use? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think uh, you know there are some similarities, um, but again, uh, I think they they all have their own different um, different fingerprints. Uh, I mean, I know certainly the French were very much involved in in uh, um, plantation, um, particularly on some of this in, in, in Mozambique and sort of uh, on, on some of the Indian Ocean islands. Uh, and again, that continues to be quite exploitative, particularly using forced labour in, in in those um, in those plantations. Even even within those colonial um, powers, 
how they uh, how they administered the different um, areas varied widely. So things like Uganda, because when obviously the British uh, were present in Uganda, you know they already came across a very well organised um, society with you know, political kingdoms, with highly structured societies, well-organized uh, armies, navies, um, and that was very different to, say, uh, Kenya, uh, where those sort of pre-colonial kingdoms weren't as, weren't as strong. Um, so again, uh, the actual sort of mode of, of colonial administration was quite different um, within individual nations, but also between individual nations. Also, what their interests were in terms of the, the exploitative um, um, desires, be it around timber or gold or, or, or um, ivory. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And in your last uh, two chapters, uh, post-colonial transitions in recent political history and using the past to chart future pathways, uh, do you feel that the narrative that you've constructed in the previous chapters were uh, yielding, uh, in, uh, let's say, insights into how the the future would be shaped based on previous decisions, or whether East Africans can reinvent themselves in the present moving forward from the past? No, I, I think very much the, the latter. <laughs> um, and it is, but it's about also learning from, from, from the past, understanding the transitions that have happened, understanding the adaptation processes that have, uh, have been possible, why certain adaptations have, uh, you know, have failed, um, why things like some of the sort of cons conservation initiatives, some of the climate change initiatives which are ongoing could be most effective. Um, certainly requires us to understand a little bit about the past. And you know, a good example, I think, comes from protected areas. So, you know, we people often, you know, appreciate countries like Kenya or Tanzania through their through their majestic wildlife programs that they may see around the world, through things like sort of natural national geographic or uh, any other sort of wildlife program on on well wildebeest uh, migrations uh, across the uh, the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara. Those protected areas are initially set up as places to uh, have controlled hunting and controlled management of, of the big five, elephants, buffalo, lions, um, rhinoceroses. And Increasingly, then it became around the conservation of those uh, those keystone species. Those bound, those the, the rationale then changed to be much more around biodiversity conservation. And in the, in the past decade, it's transitioned to be much more focused around you know, livelihoods and supporting sustainable development. So the rationale for the management has changed dramatically, say, in the last 60, 70, 80 years. But the actual boundaries haven't shifted at all. You still have you know, that well-demarcated 
welcome to you know the Serengeti or Amboseli National Park or the Masai Mara, wherever it may be. So we have to understand in terms of the future, those past transitions to really understand you know, some of the challenges around conserving animals, elephants, developing income from say, wildlife tourism uh, in protected areas into the future. Um, in terms of adaptation, in terms of crops, in terms, you know, again, there's a bit of re resurgence that we see, particularly in the last couple of decades, in the face of, particularly in the face of climate change, around reconnecting to um, traditional indigenous crops, a move a little bit away from maize, um, into you know, the sorghums and millets, again, which have a much stronger uh, tolerance to some of the, the challenges around climate change, particularly changing seasonalities, changing rainfall regimes. Again, a, that appreciation of the past can you know, help us inform the future. Clearly, the challenges today are very, very different. You know, there isn't, you know, so in a way, it's not about just taking some sort of trajectory from the past to move and allow using that to allow us to move forward. But it's about using the past to provide some idea about tolerances around um, you know potential restoration targets. Again, there's a lot of interest now in afforestation schemes about restoring de degraded landscapes in things like the UN decade of ecological restoration, such as these massive initiatives now to afforest large parts of, of sub-Saharan Africa. Understanding those transitions in the past, particularly, say, some of the uh, exploitative trans transitions, um, is really important in terms of framing those future challenges. Um, again, through things like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, there's a lot of debate, and we see this each year, around you know loss and damage. Who should pay for some of the reparations? Uh, and clearly, you know, in places like Tanzania, we, where there has been extensive exploitation, historical exploitation of forestry resources, clearly there's a rationale there to pay for some of the. Um, deforestation has happened in the past, the deformification of the landscapes through exploitative um, ivory trades. So, it, you know, I say it isn't a, a simple transition from taking our understanding of the past and all its nuanced um, connections between people, their environment, their ecosystems, and just running with that into the future. But it's about using that to provide some context to provide some um, idea about um, what is possible, what could work, what could be challenging, uh, and working with that cultural environmental entanglement rather than has often been the case, working against it. Indeed, and as the title indicates, the human and the environment should be both thought of together in the same framework rather than one versus the other. Um, You've covered uh, a vast geography, uh, combining Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya in the book. Uh, most of the scholarship that we have on East Africa's environmental and agrarian history 
uh, centered on certain locales and case studies. So what would you say about um, having a broader perspective on the region that moves beyond post-colonial nation states and thinking about the region as a, as, as a, as a continuum or as a collective? Ah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so again, you know, I, I, I do have a bit of a sort of inward battle about, you know, what countries to include in this. And, 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 and ultimately, I went with those, uh, those three major countries largely because that's where, where I've worked, uh, where, our, where my sort of connections and collaborations are, are strongest. I think there are some common threads, as mentioned right in the beginning, um, around that connections of, of, of language, um, clearly within the East African region, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, there is certainly disconnects or you know divergence of, of, of cultures. I certainly wouldn't say they are cult is culturally connected, but there is a, a I think a, a benefit from from um, what we call you know over the horizon um, perspectives. So like you say, a lot of the work that goes on, is often carried out as, a, as an individual location with an individual perspective. Um, but that individual location, that individual perspective has to be um, informed by what's happening in different locations with different contexts. Um, and that really increases the interpretive power. One of the um, things I think I've been very fortunate to experience as a paleoecologist in my in, in sort of 30 or so years of, of working across uh, the, this area with universities, museums in, in Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda has been that transition from a, a purely descriptive discipline. So certainly when I did my PhD, it was sufficient to work in a location and describe change. Where nowadays, because we have these this increasing number of locations across the region that has allowed us to move from a, a purely a descriptive discipline to a much more interpretive dis discipline where we can use our understanding to inform contemporary debates to inform um, discussions around future land use planning around nature-based solutions for conservation um, around where trees should be planted or where they shouldn't be, what trees should be planted in what place, uh, and some of the aftercare issues around our, our ecosystems. Uh, and, and again, I think these are particularly important in, in what in, continues to be an incredibly dynamic relationship between people, ecosystems and the environment. And I mentioned earlier on some of the transitions that we see firsthand in today in terms of say Maasai populations becoming increasingly sedentary, transitioning from traditional cattle uh, keeping to um, you know, having some sort of sedentary agricultural operations going. So it is an incredibly dynamic landscape that continues to change, continue to adapt, um, but having multiple uh, insights from multiple locations allows us to take that wider regional perspective, which is really important, I think, particularly because there are you know, clearly global challenges out there. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, 
in an increasingly connected world. Um, in our, it is those global challenges which are playing out at a local level. Indeed. So who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Um, I guess ultimately it was it was written for a sort of undergraduate academic audience. Um, and um, the idea is obviously that it would inform people's research. It would provide a bit of a background to, um, to, to the work that goes on. But also I'm, I'm very keen for um, tourists to read it, people who go on safari you know there are hundreds of thousands of, of visitors per year that uh, that tourist trade is continuing again you know obviously we've had a bit of a, a covid in, inspired break um but certainly um you know, lots and lots of people come to to the region marvel at the the uh, the culture the environment the wildlife but putting some context to that, understanding some of the, the issues that they see um, so that they can be informed about these current contemporary debates around managing landscapes. And again, you know, we talked earlier on a little bit about, you know, those debates through things like the climate change negotiations and loss and damage and just providing some context to why those uh, you know, landscapes and some of the challenges that we see today across East Africa are there. And ultimately, you know, some of the foundations behind some of those uh, challenges certainly lay in a, in a globalised world and not with you know, the individual populations such as, say, the Maasai. And I would add the book is also quite rich in uh, beautiful illustrations, maps, graphs, charts, and uh, would really constitute a, a very, uh, let's say, uh, grounding uh, introduction to East Africa to any researchers who are interested in uh, exploring the different periods that the book covers. Uh, well, we've taken a lot of your time, Rob. Uh, but we'd like to ask you the final question, which is, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current or future projects? Um, yes, so I have uh, quite a lot of ongoing ongoing work. I'm actually quite excited to be uh, going back to Kenya on, on Friday, actually. Um, and one of the, uh, the populations we've worked with for the last 15 years are around southern Kenya. There's a lot of interest in particularly that landscape um, across um, southern Kenya and some of the, the massive challenges which are there, you know, particularly around uh, around climate variability and adaptation to that climate variability. Um, so I'll, I'll be spending some time with uh, sort of Maasai communities uh, at uh, Indoata, which is just uh, adjacent to uh, one of the famous national parks, Amboseli National Park. We're staying in the Manyata, so a traditional uh, Maasai settlement, and there we are. They have set up a, a tree planting program in the last two years. They have set up a green ambassadors program in the last year, um, and so uh, we will be doing some sort of training of trainers, having conversations about supporting populations uh, in the best way we can to 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 really address some of these challenges that they are facing on the ground. Um, also, we'll be spending some time working with uh, the, the, the Kenyan government and the, the count, county of 
of council governors on land use planning and again just trying to get ahead of the game you know as i say there are so many challenges out there um, be it around infrastructure and the impact that it has on the on the landscape around uh, climate change around the 30 by 30 agenda or the afforestation agenda just try and get ahead of the challenges you know using participatory land use scenario tools to to, to try and plan uh, a future which is resilient and uh, where there is space for wildlife there is space for for, for, for people and uh, adaptation um, it can be maximized one last I guess long, a little bit, bit more of a sort of slower burn project I'm working on. I do a lot of work with the Mountain Research Initiative. Have a, a passion for mountains. Um, clearly, there are some majestic mountains in East Africa, and that was on the cover of the book, obviously uh, Kilimanjaro. Um, but I'm now working on a book project with uh, Elsevier to do uh, a dedicated book on mountains that will be. Yeah, coming out in 2025. So that's a few years down the line. That sounds amazing. We wish you best of luck and looking forward to having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time today uh, talking about the book and sharing your thoughts and ideas about East Africa. And thank you for the listeners for joining us to uh, listen to today's episode in which we explored East Africa's human environment interactions, historical perspectives for a sustainable future, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. <laughs>